Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, we welcome David Mas Masumoto. He's a farmer and an author of multiple books, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and other publications, an early adopter of the organic farming movement, and the grower of some of the most delicious peaches you will ever have. In any state, anywhere, anytime, Mas and his family have grown these peaches, uh, nectarines, and grapes for raisins on their farm in Del Rey, just a little bit south of Fresno, for going on, I want to say, almost 75 years now. So it's a multi-generational operation that Moss and his family run. And we talked about that operation as well as how it has influenced California agriculture, California food and dining culture, and also just the kind of discussion between organic and conventional and what that all means. So I'm really excited to hear from Moss and really take our first dive on this podcast into the agriculture industry and farming, especially in the Central Valley. So hopefully this will be the first of many conversations on this podcast about the agriculture industry and its impact, both domestically within California and also nationally and internationally, what it all means and why agriculture in California matters the way it does and the challenges that face it. Before we get to Moss, just a quick check-in. want to see how you're all doing, how your Thanksgiving went. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving break? Did you eat too much? I did not eat too much. In fact, what I do is I kind of, I just, uh, I made a pumpkin pie. All right. That's all I wanted. I just kind of hung out by myself. Uh, I made a pumpkin pie. I don't care about the turkey. I don't care about the stuffing or the dressing or the sides or the casserole or any of that stuff. I just want to make a pumpkin pie and have that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I think during the last episode, I might've said something about making like Thanksgiving chili or something like that. I used to do that, but really I just want pie. That's it. So I made a pie. I made a pie and I have one slice left. Um, and actually when you listen to this on Thursday or, you know, subsequent days after the podcast comes out, that slice will be gone. I will have eaten the whole pie. And, uh, if it's, if it makes you feel any better about my complete lack of discipline or nutritional, uh, rectitude, I did take a full seven days to eat the pie. So it's not like I just gorged myself on pie for the entire Thanksgiving day. I did spread it out. So, you know, I'm not a totally terrible person. Uh, just slightly. And um, anyway, the, the, pie, the pie was delicious. It was out of this world. Um, I'll post the recipe in the show notes. It is a vegan pumpkin pie, but you would not know the difference. I think the recipe is actually called You Won't Believe It's Vegan Pumpkin Pie. Uh, when you think about it, a pumpkin pie is just pumpkin, right? I mean, it's just squash. And you put that milk and the cream in it and stuff like that. But all it really needs is fat. So you just use cashews. You blend up some cashews and uh, you throw a little bit of non-dairy milk in there, perhaps for a little bit of extra liquid. And that you soak the cashews so they get really um, creamy. And once you blend all that up, you have a pumpkin pie filling that is indistinguishable from a conventional pumpkin pie filling. So if you're plant-based curious... Uh, I highly recommend it. If you're not plant-based curious, you just want your regular pumpkin pie, that's fine too. Go for it. All I'm saying, just don't do pumpkin pie mix, whatever you do, and have the pie. If you want the pie, just have the pie. It's it's worth it. It's worth making the pie and having the pie. If it's the only thing you eat on the holiday, you know, life is short. Have the pie. 
Our guest today is David Moss Masamoto, as I mentioned, and Moss is pretty awesome. Let me tell you how Moss wound up on the show. He published an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times this summer that talked about the challenges of finding water for his farm and how all of the Central Valley farmers and the entire agricultural industry was struggling with water and how if we don't have water, we don't have agriculture and we got to do something about this. What's what's the you know, solution going to be? And this op-ed I'll link to in the show notes, and we did talk about it in the episode, uh, kind of opened my eyes to, you know, of course I knew that drought was an issue in California. I think everybody knows that, but... And we all know that farmers are struggling with lack of water and how the water resources are kind of uh, are allocated around the state. Moss was a unique perspective that talked very, very specifically about the family farmer, the multi-generational family farm that we don't really see that much of anymore. You know, I think the iconography of the farmer is like, you know, a guy in some jeans and a plaid shirt and some boots, maybe lean on in his truck wearing a ball cap or something like that. And, um, you know, and we've, we've seen that image. It's kind of seared into our brains. And that is not exactly what farming looks like in most of California. Farming in California is largely industrialized and it's not one person or even like a handful of people working on a family farm. There are family farms like Mas Masamoto's. It's actually called Masamoto Family Farm. The whole family works on the farm right? His wife, Marcy, his kids, Corio and Nikiko. And Nikiko is particularly involved in the operations of the farm and perhaps maybe the next generation to work and lead that farm. But we talked about that op-ed as kind of in the framing of, we don't even know if there'll be family farms. If this drought persists the way it does, if water allocation persists the way it does, if the industrialization and consolidation of farming continues the way it has, that could spell doom for the small farm. And by small farm, we're talking like maybe 70, 80 acres, maybe even not that big. A lot of these farms are thousands and thousands of acres, and they have been consolidated, again, over decades. So to see a farm like Mas Masamoto's farm thriving right now is definitely unique. And they have their farm stand in the summer. And when I originally reached out to Moss to appear on the show, he very kindly, as is his custom, he's an incredibly nice guy, and you'll hear on the episode, um, he respectfully declined. He said, I'm just, you know, really overwhelmed right now with farming. That's what I do. I'm a farmer. And so he just couldn't do it in the summer. I said, hey, totally get it. When's a good time? He said, check in with me a little bit later, maybe late summer, early fall. I get back in touch with him and it, like around September, October, something like that. And he says, you know, the raisin harvest just won't end. I'm still kind of up to my neck in farming. Can you get back to me later? So climate change at this point, in addition to drought, has changed and he, I guess, extended the seasons for a lot of what Masamoto grows. So uh, the farm and its cycles have changed in the time since Mas Masamoto has started doing his work. And that experience, I think you can magnify that times all of the family farms in the Central Valley and around the state for that matter. So I found that really illuminating and um, enlightening. So I hope you do too. Uh, Moss is an amazing guy. He's also the author of multiple books, including probably he's best known for Epitaph for a Peach, which grew out of an op-ed he wrote for the Los Angeles Times uh, an earlier op-ed he wrote for the Times back in the 80s. And um, all of his books deal with the relationship between the farmer and the land. And the land is kind of a character in his books. It's fascinating. He talks about that in our conversation as well. So 
Um, we'll have links to all of his books and his uh, farm in the show notes. You can check those out. Check out his writings with the LA Times as well. I'll link to those in the show notes. If you have any questions for me, you know where to find me. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I'd love it if you wrote in. And just a quick programming note that next week, December 9th, is the last episode of What is California for the year. It's the end of our first season, and we have a very special episode planned for you. It's a year in review episode with very special guests, Gustavo Arellano from the Los Angeles Times, Serena Dai from the San Francisco Chronicle, and Emily Hoven from CalMatters. We're going to talk about the year that was in California, how we bounce back from the dumpster fire of 2020, what we can look forward to in 2022, and everything in between. It was a blast talking to them, and I look forward to sharing that conversation with you next week, December 9th. Look for it then. Without further ado, here is me with Mas Masamoto on What is California? Enjoy. Mas Masmoto, welcome to What is California. I'm so glad to have you here. I want to talk all about your work and your life and your experience in California. But before we start that, why don't we hear about your California story? Are you from here originally? Uh, yes, I was born in a small town right next to our farm, Selma, California. I grew up here. Uh, and like many good farm kids, I couldn't wait to run away from the farm. Ran off to college to Berkeley thinking my parents would never come visit me there. They never did. Uh, and it would take me far enough away. So I studied sociology thinking it would even drive me further away from the farm. And lo and behold, I come back to take over the family farm. And I've been here since 1980 farming uh, and raising a family. Was there a moment when you realized, ah, I have to go back to the farm? Like, not just that you needed to, like, as a professional need, but just as almost like kind of a spiritual need to go back? Interestingly, uh, I wasn't far enough away from the farm in Berkeley, so I was an exchange student in Japan for about two years, thinking that will really take me away from the farm. Uh, ironically, I became interested in our family history, uh, went down and lived with my grandmother's brother on their small rice farm in Kumamoto, Japan, which is in the southern part of Japan. Uh, and while I was working in the fields, here I am working in the fields in Japan, I realized I don't know anything about how to grow rice. It was an alien crop, but peaches, nectarines, raisins, I do know that. And there's a moment where I said, I need to go back to the farm. And that was probably the moment I decided, uh, no matter what happened, I'm going to go back to at least see what it was like uh, and from a different lens, a little older lens than a teenager when I had left before. And that's probably was the beginning of taking me back to my roots, so to speak. Oh, ironically, I was in my roots in Japan from the original, our original family had uh, immigrated from. Did you ever think about doing anything else besides farming and agriculture? Oh, at one point I thought, oh, maybe I'll become an attorney. That sounds good. And I'm very pleased I didn't become an attorney. Uh, I well, maybe thought, okay, maybe I'll stay in the academy and teach or something like that. Or maybe go into education. In fact, when I came back to the farm uh, and I realized the economics of farming was tough, I thought, well, maybe I'll become a teacher. So I actually got into the credentialing program at Fresno State. Uh, and I thought, maybe Maybe I'll do that, uh, but decided, no, I'd rather work out in the fields. But then I also studied journalism uh, and, and took some writing classes and loved that uh, and thought, well, maybe I could do both at the same time. But as it evolved, I stayed mainly with farming, but I also continued to write, obviously. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. What's your earliest memory of California? Oh, probably as a little kid. 
and growing up on a farm, it was wonderful because we played outside in the dirt all the time. Uh, so I grew up with dirt and summertime making these, you know, these little uh, dirt bombs where I throw up a pile of dirt and it'd crash and, and make this cloud in the wintertime. And whenever it rained, we'd make some mud pies. So my earliest memory is probably playing in the dirt, looking up and seeing the outline of the Sierras, which is about, you know, 50 to 100 miles, no, 50 miles from our house. And it was this beautiful sense of being in a valley and understanding that I like being in a valley away from the big cities uh, and enjoying life out in nature. How old were you? Oh, I was probably five or six at that time. So at that early age and this memory that stuck with you, you knew you wanted to be in the valley. I knew I, wa I loved the rural areas. I knew I, you know, I enjoyed living in big cities. I enjoyed the, the, the pace of life and the, and the people and the communities, but there's something about being out alone on the farm that I thrived on. Uh, I love the solitude, I love the sounds, the, the smell, the feel, the texture, uh, and being isolated might be a kind of way of describing it. Uh, and so ironically, with this pandemic, it was fine. I just kind of drove through everything and continued to work more than I ever have isolated on the farm uh, and enjoyed it for the most part. I mean, certainly things in the last year and a half have been tough. Uh, but being by myself is what I, I think I strive to be. Uh, I remember there's a line from a poem I once read long ago about walking alone, being happy alone. That's tranquility. And I think I found a tranquility from when I was being a little kid to now. Over the years, bouncing between the farms, bouncing between the cities, kind of seeing all of California and meeting its people and experiencing California, how has the state's people and culture influenced or impacted who you are and who you've become? One of the biggest changes from like my grandparents and my parents' era was the, the divide between urban and rural. The split between city and country has, has been reduced. Uh, clearly, things like the internet has helped that, where we could communicate a lot more. Uh, and because of that, there is much more of this continuity, this sense of connection, this sense of, uh, of, of relationships between city and country people. Uh, and clearly, when you farm, we always had that connection, except that we t tried to stay isolated because, you know, you grow a peach, you uh, put it in boxes, you wave goodbye at the truck, and you have no idea what happens with the end user. Now you can, you could follow your fruit to market, you could hear responses, people could come back to you, they come, uh, uh, come to the farm at certain times of the year when we have a more open uh, house at the farm and there's that sense of relationship that I think is so important and that's what I think has changed a lot, especially in California. That divide between urban and rural uh, has been diminished and reduced a lot through technology. What kind of work do you do? What do you grow? What do you write? Uh, we have an organic uh, peach, nectarine, apricot, and raisin farm. We were early or adopters of organic practices in the 1980s. We became certified. Uh, and slowly and gradually, as the organic marketplace evolved and matured, so did we. We were in the right place at the right time. We got better at what we did in terms of finding markets and, and then those markets helping to literally feed us 
in terms of not only monetary support, but other kinds of, you know, just general support of keeping doing what you're doing. Uh, and at the same time, I started writing a lot. You know, I uh, uh, was always writing columns and, and articles like for magazines and newspapers. Uh, I had uh, an early book published that it was self-published, actually, which was an oral history of uh, my farming neighbors. It was called Country Voices. Uh, and it was really important because it helped me ground myself with others around me, but also find my voice. And my voice was ironically not a fictional voice of, of somebody else. It was a real voice of authenticity here. So uh, the book that probably uh, really changed my life was uh, in, published in 1995 called Epitaph for a Peach. It was about a homeless peach that we grew that wasn't uh, compatible with the marketplace. It didn't have a full red color when it was ripe, and it didn't have the so-called shelf life that a lot of the retailers wanted. Uh, so I was forced to make a decision, you know, do we yank out this peach because we're losing money on it, or do we keep something that has value and uh, reinforce the life that we did. I wrote an essay about it in the LA Times. It was published, I got some wonderful feedback. It was actually 20 letters that people wrote back, in the, back at that point, urging me to keep the speech. So armed with 20 letters, uh, my wife came home from her work in Fresno and I said, guess what, we got 20 letters. And she looked at me and, I, and she said, are we going to keep those peaches? I said, yeah, we're going to keep them. And uh, so she had to keep working harder uh, and we kept the peach, but it was a, a turning point. Because we kept that peach, this Epitaph for a Peach book was published, launched us into the food world, reinforced the work that we uh, were doing, and a lot of things started falling in place. So that's sort of the background of what we do on our farm and our family farm. Now, you're talking about the Suncrest peach, right? And the reason mm -hmm. that people were writing you 20 letters about the Suncrest peach was because, you know, it may not have looked exactly like the ideal peach looks according to the market, but it tasted amazing. It was juicy. It was a very high quality peach, right? Absolutely. The beauty of the, of the Suncrest was it's an heirloom variety uh, that was developed when people wanted and remembered good taste. They had a memory of flavor. And it was very important because right around the 80s and 90s, the marketplace was starting to shift. You know, retailers would want fruit that has the wonderful cosmetic characteristics that people thought they wanted. Uh, and I had to try to capture a, a market of people who remembered what a good peach tasted like. And I always remember a broker once told me that, you know, people don't know what they don't know. So if you've never had a great tasting peach, you won't miss a great tasting peach. So that was even more of that passion that drove us to say, we need to keep these in the, uh, out in the public and keep growing them. So in turn, we planted more heirloom varieties of fruit. I went sort of backwards the way the industry was going, thinking there's a home for this, and there was. Partly the home was in the organic marketplace, but also it was in this growing food movement that, you know, people were, were conscious and willing to support uh, people who grew these great tasting uh, fruits and vegetables, and we happened to fit into that. Uh, so that's where Suncrest, to me, was a critical, critical piece. And we still have those original trees that I planted with my dad in 1968. Uh, and, uh, and they're still producing wonderfully. Uh, and it's this nice continuity with the past, which I think the Suncrest also represented. How do you make a living in California? 
Ah, as a farmer, one, you go in with low expectations. Uh, you're not going to get filthy rich, and if you think you are, you should get out of farming. Secondly, uh, it's a tough physical job. Uh, you know, I'm 67. I'm still probably working 40 to 50 hours out in the fields. I expect to do that. I don't mind doing that. Uh, if you want to retire early in farming, uh, you're not going to do it. You're going to have to keep farming to your old. And the hope is you love doing this. So that's why you'll keep doing it. And the other thing, too, is you probably start looking for other sources in terms of income. Uh, uh, either you have a, a partner, a spouse, family that could support you. Uh, my wife worked off the farm, which provided a lot of stability early on, especially with other benefits like health care. Uh, and then later, the other aspect of working on this life is that you find ways where things resonate and connect with each other. And I think that's where my writing came in. Uh, you know, I, I write creative nonfiction, books about farm life, books about food, books about the work that we do. If I was a novelist, I possibly wouldn't like the work that I'm doing because it would be taking away uh, from my, you know, creative thinking that I'm doing about writing a novel. Uh, but here I write about the work that I do and I, uh, uh, and the work that I do feeds the stories that I write about. And now, interestingly, with more technology and communications, the stories resonate with an audience who buys our peaches and nectarines. So there's this wonderful full circle connection about that. So I think that's how I make my living, so to speak. It's not about money, but it's about relationships. For listeners who aren't enlightened about this, including, uh, I guess, me, uh, what is the difference between conventional farming and organic farming? Well, one thing you have to realize is that, that, that farming has become really two parallel dimensions, two parallel lives. One went on a very industrial track, which is based a lot on monetary rewards and capitalism. Uh, and the idea is, is growing larger and being more efficient. Uh, we went in the opposite direction, and not all organic farms are like that. And the big difference between conventional and organic is that organic is using uh, uh, natural pest controls. We don't spray chemicals. Uh, and probably the most important thing, we take care of the earth and the soil. We feel organic farmers believe the soil is alive and has had biology in it, as opposed to something that's used sort of like a, a factory setting just to produce something. So we approach the farm, uh, farming from a very, very different perspective. So as we started uh, understanding how we were different, one of the things was a question of scale. Uh, and we realized, I realized that for us to do what we wanted to do, I literally had to touch every tree every year. Uh, which meant we had to stay small. Uh, we have about 25 acres of stone fruit, peaches, uh, peaches, nectarines, and apricots, and about 20 to 30 acres of vines that we make into raisins. We're small. We're very small. When I was growing up with my dad in, you know, in the uh, 50s and 60s, 80-acre farm was a mid-sized farm. You could do okay with that. Now it's, it's puny. It's tiny. Uh, and, and you have to figure out other ways to, quote, compete if you do that. And in many ways, you don't compete. Because farming is uh, conventional farming, industrial farming, it's all based on size and again on efficiencies and productivity. We had to go a different direction looking at quality more than anything and relationships. It's hard to believe that it's been more than a quarter century since Epitaph for a Peach <laughs> came out. 
I mean, we're a generation on, right? And now your children are working on the farm too, and they're active in what you do. As far as the industry goes, though, looking back on the years since Epitaph for a Peach, how did your choice to keep growing the Suncrest, both industrially and like symbolically, how did that choice and your decision to write about it affect the industry? In the beginning, one of the early decisions we made farming organically was I still needed to find a home for our fruit. Uh, so for a number of years, we produced this fantastic organic you know, peaches and nectarines that went into the regular marketplace and was sold conventionally because the organic marketplace hadn't developed yet. So I needed to find a way that I could still survive doing that. Uh, certainly, I would need help, like having a, a partner that was working off the farm, etc., etc. Uh, uh, but at that point, I said no, because I couldn't depend on just this one dream to carry me through. You know, it's that classic tale or the idea that, you know, uh, you, know you need to do more than just hope. Uh, so we, so we uh, was, were able to be part of the industry. So I was always part. So I remember sitting on some boards and committees, and I was the only organic farmer. And they sort of laughed at what we did because we thought we were, they thought I was just a fringe person. But I think some of them appreciated me trying to do something different. And a lot of them were, I remember saying, you know, my dad or my grandfather used to talk the same way you did. And they had to take a step back thinking, is that... Is that something that I need to be thinking of? Uh, and then what happened is uh, farming and agriculture really began to go on two tracks. One was, you know, meeting the, the higher demand for commodities. Uh, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just the main thing was it wasn't right for us. And the other track was something was happening in the food world. A revolution was starting to occur, especially through the 90s. And a simple example is we were one of the early providers of uh, peaches to Whole Foods in the 90s. Whole Foods was just a tiny, tiny uh, organization begun in Texas. And we were the early providers to Whole Foods and like two stores. <laughs> so as Whole Foods grew, we had a market that grew at the same time. And it was a sign of, the, of that world changing. As a result, that food world has had a huge impact on regular conventional farming and industrial agriculture. So they're starting to pay attention to consumers who are paying attention to food, to uh, other aspects. You could see even right now, uh, a lot of the industry is starting to pay attention to even even social issues, wanting to make sure that, you know, it's f growing food in America isn't just about exploitation and just getting the cheapest product out there. There's a new valuation that's occurring, and I think it was that alternative, even organic marketplace that started pushing people to revalue what they thought of food. And certainly as boomers aged and got into a, a different health level, they started looking at food in a very different lens because it was feeding their bodies. We need to take care of our bodies. Where is this food being grown? How it's growing? Who's growing it? And is it healthy for me? Yeah, I think that's so important because I think the decision you made in the decision you made with the Suncrest peaches again epitomizes a turning point in American agriculture, certainly in California agriculture, and it foreshadowed or at least reflected what was originating at the time, that idea of the farm to table movement that we've seen popularized. Now obviously, you know, a lot of that goes back to Alice Waters in the 70s and California cuisine and all that stuff, but when it comes to the actual agricultural side, we saw this 
rise in popular demand for flavor and heritage, you know, an origin. And I, I guess I just want to ask, I'll start with what has that shift in attitude or that evolution in taste meant for your business? Well, the biggest shift that occurred for us was the realization that there was a, there were people, a public out there who wanted something that had flavor and taste. It wasn't just about size and it wasn't just about color. It was about a different type of standard. Uh, and that standard was a human standard. And you had to realize then we could start looking at not so much growing something for the grocery store, it's growing something for the consumer, for the person who's using it, for the person who's eating it. Uh, and then I think that set off a huge change because literally back when my father was farming uh, in the 60s, the buyers weren't the end users, weren't the people eating it. The buyers were the grocery store, uh, uh, you know, fruit buyers. The, they were the ones we had to please. Uh, and then there was this huge shift that occurred uh, in the 90s and, and the 2000s where people began to pay attention, people began to demand more. And one of the interesting things is all you had to show the industry that you might be making a little bit more money at times than they, they'll perk up and start changing and start saying, wait a minute. So if you look at this pandemic, right, food sales have been very good. The organic marketplace has done very well in this last 18 months of the pandemic because people have been paying attention to food even more so. So the industry has seen that. And you can just start looking at how uh, uh, things are changing, the promotion that uh, uh, foods are having. They're paying attention to things. And you can even see, uh, interestingly and wonderfully, they're paying attention to other issues, social justice issues, for example, and looking at well, how are workers being treated, you know, uh, and that becomes part of the story of food. That might be the key point, Stu. It's the idea that the industrial agriculture didn't care about story. The work that I did, the work that Suncrest sort of launched was, no, there's story behind every food that we eat, every bite, and that story is part of the meaning of food. Let's find out more about that story. And wonderfully, again, through internet and technology, those stories were able to be shared. Now, I believe in that story myself as a consumer and as a Californian, you know, and obviously as a journalist, that appeals to me. And I believe in taste. I believe in consumer taste. I think, you know, my tastes are fairly refined, uh, fairly sophisticated. But then there's also, as you alluded to, there's marketing, you know, and I feel like as a consumer, um, when it comes to choosing fruits and vegetables, I kind of know what I'm doing and I go to the farmer's market and I think a lot of folks there can also assess the quality of what they're getting. But there are 40 million people in this state. Mm -hmm. And I also sense that the vast majority of folks are vulnerable to vague marketing abstractions, you know, um, a story that is like fiction as opposed to the actual narrative of something like Epitaph for a Peach. And they're vulnerable to abstractions like farm to fork, farm to table, farm fresh. I mean, even a bland peach is farm fresh at some point, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the changes I think that's occurred was that not only are people paying attention more to food, uh, it's becoming personal. Interestingly, during the pandemic, it made people realize how much money was being spent to have somebody else cook your food. Uh, I think statistics read 50% of meals were eaten, eaten outside the home 
which meant someone else is cooking your food. And when someone else cooks it, it's wonderful, it's convenient, but you don't have necessarily that personal connection. During the pandemic, everybody had to eat at home suddenly. You had to you know, uh, you know, cook for your family. You had to not just have one family meal, you had multiple ones and it drove people nuts. I'm sure people were crazy. Uh, I know a lot of the traditional uh, households where the father never cooked had to suddenly cook and was totally lost and had to learn some things, which was so healthy that it began to be personal for everyone. And I know young, a younger generation began to realize, wait a minute, this is my food. There was this personalization. That, I think, is the key to have people understand and pay attention more and maybe not be swayed by marketing programs or platforms because they're saying, this is a personal decision. And wonderfully, you don't, my whole goal wasn't to change the entire industry. It was to change 5%, 10%. If you look at most industries, if you look at Apple Computer and Apple, when they started, they were 5 10% of the market, but they had a huge impact of the whole system and how uh, it shifted uh, uh, directions. And again, I think that's what our goal is. If we could you know, start in, uh, impacting a small critical mass, and it might be 10% of the market, it will have an impact that ripples through the whole marketplace. And people, I think, will become personal about the food that they eat. And you talked a minute ago about how much time you actually spend farming, like out on the farm, on the land, touching every tree every season. You, you said that. But now, over the recent years, as you see the market evolve, how much of your job is also conveying the distinction between factory farmed, industrially farmed food and what grows at your farm and why it's worth the added expense or added effort for a consumer. Oh, part of the wonderful evolution of, of things on the farm is that you don't farm alone anymore. You're surrounded by a network, a community, uh, and it goes into everything from social media, uh, but also people around me. Uh, so as for example, we toyed uh, at one point, should we be doing a podcast? Should we be doing some blogging? And I thought about that, but that takes a lot of time. Wonderfully, people like you, Stu, are getting interested in, in helping to share our story. Uh, and I thought, this is great. You could have the wonderful studio skills to do everything and share this story. And I think that's been a huge, huge evolution. The second aspect is the realization that we are a family farm. Uh, my daughter ran off to Berkeley too, not thinking she was going to be coming back to the farm. She ended up having this, uh, this journey where it circled back and now she's the major partner on the farm. She's younger, she's much more savvier to technology, the social media. So she is doing all these wonderful things to help share that story in her way that meets and connects with her millennial generation, uh, which, you know, an old timer might me, like me might work, but oftentimes doesn't. Well, no, she could do one little post on Instagram and go, oh my gosh, people really love that, huh? You know, uh, where I could do a real clunky post that people kind of like, but they're not really sure about it and everything. But it, it's the idea that uh, there's more ways the story could be shared. Because uh, I know when uh, I wrote Epitaph for a Peach and the first essay was published in the LA Times in 1987, uh, fortunately, the LA Times then had uh, syndicated their columns and they syndicated to all these newspapers across the nation when 
newspapers were still thriving across the nation. So these little papers in Ohio and North Carolina picked up that column from the LA Times. That's where I got a couple letters from. Uh, and it was just a different landscape of how stories are told and shared. Uh, it worked then. Uh, that model wouldn't work now. But then, wonderfully, there's other things that are taking its place. So the key idea, again, is that uh, we are having ways of adapting and pivoting to get the, keep the story out there. Yeah, not 20 letters, but 20 likes. <laughs> well, actually, you hope for 200 or 2,000 likes. <laughs> We're scaling up. <laughs> Uh, this past summer, you wrote another op-ed for the Los Angeles Times about the dire challenges facing your farm and farms like it. And I got to say, Moss, it was it was a little uh, a little heartbreaking. I, I wanted to check in. Like, are you doing okay? It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, it begins. Quote: I can see my future. It's dry, thirsty, and bleak. On our farm, we live with drought daily, working with limited groundwater and learning to adjust and adapt or to fail and abandon our fields. Water will determine a farmer's survival." End quote. What did you want people to know and what do you want people to know about water and farming in California? Water is the lifeblood of farming. We cannot farm without water. The biggest concern is to realize that we, you know, climate change is real. Uh, the, the patterns of, of things as simply as rainfall and snowpacks are, are shifting dramatically and changing how we farm. Uh, it is bleak out here. Uh, there are going to be uh, farms that can't continue. We are fallowing some of our fields. Uh, we're going to yank out seven acres of, of grapes this year because we can't afford to keep watering them and we have to ration our water. And we happen to be on our farm through luck in a pretty good water area where we get some water from the uh, Kings River and uh, any if there is snowpack and our groundwater isn't bad. So we're very fortunate. But what I really wanted to convey in that essay was we're all part of this larger ecosystem that not only involves nature but literally food. Uh, and city people need to understand that the drought isn't about them not being able to water their lawns. It's going to be about the food they eat. It's going to change that dynamic with that. The other aspect is to realize water isn't a commodity. Uh, one, no one controls and owns all the water. We can't control when and if it rains. Uh, but also, we need to relook at how water is allocated, uh, in, in especially in California. You know, you have you know three or four major groups that need water. Certainly agriculture is one. You know, municipalities and, and cities need water, but also the environment. Uh, environmentalists, the, the natural uh, uh, ecosystem needs water. So we need to balance, how do we allocate what we have out there? How do we balance things of, of you know, water rights and laws versus you know, Northern California versus Southern California water, groundwater? It's all gonna be part of a larger picture we all have a stake in. It's not just agriculture, it's not just you know, uh, environmentalists, fighting, environmentalists fighting a farmer or fighting the you know, water district in some other cities. We all have to find a way that we could share and work with this scarce resource. Yeah, and you ended that op-ed on sort of an optimistic note. You wrote, again, I'm quoting, dwelling on one season or a year is short-term thinking. 
end quote. The idea being that your orchards and vineyards have survived decades, generations, obviously. What reassures you that your farm and farms around it will survive for generations more? One is it gets back to the simple old model that we're a family farm. When my daughter decided to come back to farm, uh, I realized there's always this question of how many harvests do I have left? And I'm 67, very healthy, I think. Uh, and so do, do I have 10 more harvests left? 15, 20 more harvests? Well, when my daughter comes, and my son's helping too, but when my daughter comes and said, oh, you know, she's in you know, her early 30s. The farm has 30, 40, 50 years of life. And then you take a step back and go, oh my gosh, let me think of how things have changed in the last 50 to 80 years when my grandparents were farm workers here in, in California. And you understand that sense of change and the sense of continuity at the same time and the ability for people and things to change. Farming will evolve, will change. We need to be bright enough. We need to look forward enough to understand those changes and then take a step back and realize, oh my gosh, we're just a little blip in the timeline of, of the whole valley and how, you know, thousands of years ago, this was an ancient lake bed, you know, and how indigenous people walked this land and were part of this land too. And, you know, their, their traditions are, are part of what we need to do in terms of looking at survival, certainly looking at, you know, fighting wildfires and forest, uh, 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 taking care of forests, looking at other ways of, of understanding how nature works and how we can live with nature. So I am optimistic that, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, California is still going to be thriving, but it's going to look so different than what we have now. And I'm excited for that opportunity because I want it to look different. Oh yeah? Yeah. I think think of something as complex as a pandemic. Who would have thought the pandemic would have hit and changed how we work? You know, with suddenly all this remote work and people not wanting to go back to a, a workplace and how it changed how we eat. Well, climate change is going to have this huge impact too. So you could start looking at how in California in what 20, 30 years, uh, it might be all electric vehicles. Who would have thought in my lifetime we're going to have that major, major change? Although I have to say, growing up on the farm, I remember looking uh, on our barn wall and seeing these uh, uh, horse uh, and mule, you know, uh, uh, equipment, saddles, some peas, they call it, when they would hook into a piece of equipment. And my dad farmed with mules at one time on the farm. I never did. I wouldn't have a clue about how to do it. I go, oh my gosh, in a short amount of time, there's been a major change on the farm. And there's that famous supposed quote that about Henry Ford when he invented the tractor and he went to farmers and uh, they were a little bit hesitant about making that change. And he said, you know what the matter of farmers is? If you ask them, what do they want? Do they want a tractor? No, they want a faster horse. And it just made you realize that, oh, no, no, change happens so rapidly in that short amount of time. So in the next 50 years, there'll be this rapid change that occurs. You know, they'll look at back at the farming we're doing and thinking, you know, my daughter might look back if I'm still alive in 50 years and look back and say, Dad, you guys farmed with mules, didn't you? And I go, yeah, that was the equivalent. I need this boost of optimism. Thank you very much. <laughs> Who are some of the Californians that you've met or encountered in your work who have really stuck with you and why? 
there's been a couple. I mean, certainly, uh, uh, you know, when I was a, a young young child, actually, I had uh, written this essay and I, I won this contest. So I got to meet William Sororian, you know, uh, and uh, and here's the wild thing. He was a kind of a grumpy man and he scared me. You're referring to William Sorian, the writer, author from the Central Valley. Exactly. And his hometown was Fresno. So I was at this uh, event where we were all, you know, uh, there's only like six or seven of us. Uh, and he scared me because he's a big man, grumpy voice. And, you know, uh, and, you know, he, I, was, I was working on a thing. And he goes, what are you doing? And I sort of explained it in a real kind of passive way. And he goes, huh. And it, I think he said something like, well, good luck because you're going to need it. You know, uh, and he was right, actually, you know, because you could be a great writer, but you need luck around you to succeed. Uh, so that was one. Certainly the relationship with Alice Waters uh, was revolutionary in terms of her early on uh, stopping to say, these peaches are fantastic and wanting to feature them. And as you know, she and her uh, story evolved, we were able to be part of that story, too. You know, uh, so that was a real important uh, one. Ironically, when I was uh, maybe in my, let me think, 30s, maybe 40s, I met George Takei from St uh, Star Trek because he mm -hmm. came to speak in Fresno. Uh, he's very active in the Japanese-American community. And it was a delight to talk to him about, you know, growing up Japanese-American. And I shared with him the story of in the 60s when Star Trek was first aired. Uh, I was so excited to see someone with an Asian face on TV. And, you know, and I wanted to be uh, uh, the future Sulu and everything. And it turned out he was a very, very kind person with some great stories to add to that. What would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces and how can that be surmounted? California was founded on the ability to innovate. That spirit of innovation, I think, has made California so unique, so uh, successful, uh, so impactful on the nation and the world. Can we keep that spirit up? Uh, and part of it, my conclusion, is that we need to keep fostering relationships. Uh, and that's where you suddenly could relook at you know, uh, social media, the media, and the internet, and think, can, are there ways that this could foster those new relationships? Uh, and they are, certainly Zoom. If it wasn't without Zoom, how would we have survived this last 18 months? But what's the future of story? for example. And story is really about relationships. And that's what I think the biggest challenge is for California, to be able to keep up those conversations to continue to have relationships. Because we're in an era, certainly politically, where it's all about polarization. It's all about choosing tribes and sides. Uh, and, and if that continues, we will not be successful. We will not be able to evolve and pivot the way we need to if, uh, to face the challenges that will come. And a simple one is how are we going to deal with climate change? And it circles back to how will we share water? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in your conversations or exchanges with folks outside California, what do you find that they most misunderstand about the state? I think they want to generalize about the state. You know, they go, well, you know, is your farm next to San Francisco or L.A.? And I go, no, we're, you know, we're a couple hundred miles away. Oh, is California that big? I think that what they don't understand is that there are, and this is a, the challenge for California, there's, there's two Californians. You know, clearly there's a class of the wealthy and those that aren't. There's the uh, dynamic of, of people who have been here for a couple generations versus the new immigrants 
that are coming. And then there's the other California, which tends to be the inland part of California. Certainly Fresno in the Valley is part of that inland versus the coastal areas dominated by San Francisco and LA. Uh, so I think outsiders don't quite get that rich diversity that we have, but also understand that, oh, that's the duality of California that is going to be a constant struggle we have to overcome. We always end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? I think there are two favorite Californians. One is, 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 is John Steinbeck. And, and the books that he wrote, you know, native California, he wrote about working class people, certainly Grapes of Wrath when I was a kid was a really, really important book because it talked about working class farm workers, immigrant, migrant workers, part of, and it was based in the valley here, you know, and I go, oh my God, he's writing about us, you know, and understanding that dynamic. And even in some of his works, he had an Asian American character that wasn't a stereotypical one. Uh, and I remember uh, reading and thinking, hey, this is someone who's looking at something different. And then as I grew older, realizing, oh, some of his books were banned at the same time, you know, because he told the truth. So I think that was uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, Californians, I think, that I remember the most. And the other one is a real different one, too. Uh, I think of another character of California is the land. And that land, I, I personify in my work. I feel the land is alive. It has history. It has a sense of history. It's evolving. It's changing. It's influenced by things around it. So that land, to me, is one of the really dynamics uh, uh, that represents the character of the state and will continue to have impact in, on who we are, just like a great novelist would, just like a great political leader would. Mas Masamoto, thank you so much for being on What is California. It's been great having you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And there you have it. That's the show. David Mas Masamoto, thank you so much for being with me. And thank you so much to you, dear listener, for listening in on this episode 13 of What is California. Can you believe it? 13 episodes next week. The season finale will be episode 14. Once again, we have very special guests joining us for the What is California Year in Review. I hope you'll check it out. You can learn more about that by following us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. You can always write me a note. I would love to hear from you at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free podcast in your inbox every Thursday, and I'll give you a free weekend links roundup of cool California stories every Friday. Again, write your inbox. Doesn't cost you a dime. What a deal. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash what is California. You want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and the headquarters cat fed. And please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like What is California, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time for our season finale. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.